0: Today's agenda begins with the minutes from the 2014 business meeting, which will be presented by our Council Secretary, Linnea Grimm. Good afternoon.
1: It is my pleasure to present the minutes from last year's annual meeting. I think you all have copies on your chair.
0: Fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The treasurer report will be presented by John Dichtel. Um, as our council treasurer, Norman Burns, sadly could not be with us today because of a, very, a loss of uh, a family member. So we're very sad for that. Um, so uh, our treasurer's report will be presented by John
2: Good afternoon. Today we have for you the results of how AASLH finished its last fiscal year as reported on our balance sheet and our operating budget results. Total assets of $1,717,729, total liabilities $458,368. Our investments continue to grow. The investment committee follows a policy with a mix of cash, 2%. Stocks, 72%, and bonds, 26%. ASLH permanently restricted net assets are $1,340,000, $1,340,585, and sum total liabilities and net assets finds us at $1.7 million. I'm sure that's right. Operating budget. The operating budget is ASLH's best indicator of financial performance. Actual total revenue for fiscal two, 2015 is 1479817 exceeding budgeted amount by $51,000, or 4%. The actual total expense is $1,325,655, below budget by $100,000, or 7.5%, and that 's largely because of salary and benefits for three staff positions that were partially filled or un- or went unfilled um, last year, including investment gains of forty six thousand seven hundred and forty dollars. We show a balanced budget with an actual surplus of one hundred and fifty four thousand dollars 100- one hundred one hundred and fifty four thousand one hundred and sixty two dollars that 's good news. Good news. Okay, our auditors, the firm of Edmondson Betzler and Dame PLLC, have confirmed the endowment corpus, or the total donor restricted contributions over the years, to be $1, I have a hard time with numbers. One million five hundred and twelve thousand three hundred and thirty-four dollars. We are continuing to improve the financial status of the organization, and in the past two years, as of June thirtieth, or the end of fiscal twenty fifteen. Between purchases and gains, the endowment value has grown by $143,991. At yesterday's council's meeting, the council voted to designate $49,377 from the FY 2015 operating surplus as part of, to be part of the endowment, thereby reducing the gap to restoring the endowment to $122,373. We are continuing to fine tune several accountability systems and sets of internal controls, and through careful investing and by generating operating budget surpluses, we expect to have fully restored the endowment within the next two years.
0: That's good news. (laughs) It's really good news, and we're excited to know that ASLH is on a trajectory to being a stronger, bigger, and more... uh, solid than we've been in, in over the years and we're very excited about the report and we thank Norman so much for his uh, expertise and help in pulling together new record-keeping and uh, Cinnamon, our former treasurer, working with Norman and Council to really tighten up how our reporting strategies are so thank you very much. <laughs> and speaking of Council, I would like very much to thank this year's council for their incredible work over this past year. It's been an exciting year for sure. And if you would, we are 16 volunteers strong. If y'all would just stand up and we would like to thank you for your service. Kim Fortney is going to read the election results and tell us the names of our incoming council members and our LNC members.
2: Hello,
1: everyone. You know what I just found? This fell off of my name badge yesterday, and here it is! (laughs) (laughs) It says I'm an official Smarty Pants and I am prone (laughs) to spontaneous sarcasm, which you knew anyway. It is my pleasure to, to report the um, election results for 2015 for both the ASLH Council and the Nominating Committee. For the ASLH Council for 2015, the incoming members are Will Tickner, Sarah Farron, Aaron Carlson-Mast, and Marion Carpenter. For the Nominating Committee, the incoming members are Lisa Anderson and Chris Taylor. Thank you.
0: Okay, this is going to happen apparently every time. <laughs> this is great. Welcome new council members, Marion Carpenter, Erin Carlston-Mass, Sarah Farron, and Will Tickner. Early this summer, council member Evelyn Figora found it necessary to resign her seat on council due to job and health reasons. We thank Evelyn for a productive year on council and thank her for her service. We will miss Evelyn. And with support from the Leadership Nominating Committee and Council, I appointed Dina Bailey to fill the remaining three years of Evelyn's term. Welcome, Dina, and thank you for agreeing to serve. Welcome to our new Leadership Nominating Committee members, Chris Taylor and Lisa Anderson. As it happens, Dina was also a member of the LNC, and in agreeing to serve on Council, Dina left a seat open on the LNC. With support from the LNC and from Council, I appointed Laura Roberts to fill Dina's LNC seat. So thank you very much, Laura. I've had the very good fortune of working with an incredibly talented, passionate, and smart group of volunteers on the ASL Council. The intense work that this particular class of council undertook over the past four years was tremendous, and we will truly appreciate their hard work. The council set policy and provides leadership for the association, meets in person three times annually, and is in continual discussion throughout the year. At these business meetings, we thank the four outgoing council members, Laura Casey, Bill Peterson, Susan Tissot, and Jay Voigt. In recognition of your contributions to council, I'm going to call you to the stage to formally say thank you for your service. Stick around for your photo and a handshake and a hug. And as a footnote, please think of yourselves not as retired from council, but as graduated to the council alumni group. I hope you will stay involved and connected with ASLH for many more years to come. So start making your way up here. Laura Casey is the Museum Service Coordinator at the Texas Historical Commission. On council, she served a full four-year term plus an additional year to fill a vacancy. Laura served on the Executive Committee, the Field Services Alliance Committee, Program Committee, Small Museums Committee, STEPS Online Clearinghouse Committee, and the ASLH Website Committee. Laura also hosted the 2014 June Council Meeting. Let's all thank Laura for her service. Bill Peterson is the Northern Division Director for the Arizona Historical Society. Bill served on council since 2011. He served on the Governance Committee, the Program Committee, and was the Awards Program Representative from Montana, and contributed to the Long Range Planning and the Aspirations Task Force. Thank you so much, Bill. You. You you. Come over here. Susan won't be able to be here to get her plaque, but we will mail it. She had to leave suddenly this morning, so we will catch up with her, but I will tell you her credentials because she's been an incredible uh, service to our association. Susan is the executive director at the Humboldt Botanical Garden in California. Since 2011, Susan served on the membership task force, the membership committee, and worked with Karen Wade on reorganizing the membership program. We really do thank Susan. Jay Voigt is the director of the South Dakota Historical Society and State Historic Preservation Officer. Jay served on the Finance Committee, the Program Committee, the STEPS Advisory Committee, and was an awards program representative for South Dakota and an awards regional representative. Jay worked on the long-range planning and the task forces and on the STEPS program. Jay, thank you so much. You also have the best <laughs> This year's annual meeting theme, The Power of Possibility, was developed by our program chairman, Kyle McCoy, of Indiana Historical Society. The annual meeting's host committee, Chairman Ket Whitworth and Scott Alvey of the Kentucky Historical Society, plan the excellent activities that match the meeting theme. The program committee and the host committee together plan the meeting to help us envision new possibilities for the history field, Kyle, Kent, and Scott, and the members of both committees, please stand so that we can recognize you and thank you. (laughs) The meeting theme is truly fitting for our times as the association is rolling forward with a new leadership team. The theme resonates with optimism. With you, I look forward to the possibility of choices we have as history workers to push the future forward where history matters more. How can the power of history move us as citizens, as a nation, in new directions, Well, the History Relevance Campaign fully kicked off this year with a landmark statement outlining seven values for history, which ASLH endorses in order to enrich the possibilities for a future where public policies, education systems, and life ways more profoundly embrace the power of history and the work we do as history workers. For me personally, I felt the power and relevance of history this summer more than ever. This summer, we witnessed a nationwide discussion about the historical symbols and landscapes that were installed over a century ago to commemorate the memory of the American Civil War. Throughout the months of June, July, and August, the nation was wrapped in town hall meetings, social media conversations, broadcast programs, and newspaper commentaries about how the citizens of the United States have come to reconsider the meanings of the statues, the flags, and the symbols All fall approaches, as fall approaches in Louisiana, the debates are still passionate, and museum workers, college professors, and historical site managers are being called upon to help moderate the discussions and to offer new perspectives on how to respond to what happens next. How do we remember the hundreds of thousands of lives lost, slavery, the Union North, the Confederate South? Who do we hurt when commemorations are exclusive? And who do we hurt when attempts are made to silence part of history? This summer, the New Orleans mayor, Mitch Landrieu, called for the removal of a half a dozen Confederate military statues and raised the possibility of renaming Lee Circle in New Orleans. Also this summer, as it happens, the Confederate soldier statue that stood in Baton Rouge from 1886 to 2011 was on display in my museum. The West Baton Rouge Museum is part of the exhibit When the Cannons Fell Silent, which we held to help mark re- the sesquicentennial of the Civil War. We borrowed it from the Louisiana Secretary of State's museum collection, and the local media went on a hunt for the Confederate Guard asking us, what happened to that statue and what should New Orleans do with their statues that are now under scrutiny? My curian and I were asked these questions by local Fox, ABC, NBC news stations, and the local NPR station. From national news to regional news in New Orleans to local news in Baton Rouge and to Port Allen, population 5,000, the public was stirred to reconsider the historical topography in our cities and towns. I had dinner last week with historian Gaines Foster, the author of Ghosts of the Confederacy, who explained some of the empirical ebb and flow of this ongoing national discussion, citing USA Today polls and CNN polls, taking the constant temperature of the nation's attitude towards the monuments dotting our historical landscapes. The questions may not be new to those of us in the history field, but the freshness of the summer debates were born from the hate crime and murder of nine innocent black people gathered in South Carolina church for Bible study. A social media image was soon found for the assassins standing with the Confederate flag. These murders and a rash of exposed police killings of black men around the nation reignited many long running debates throughout the nation about the historical symbols we've now been living with daily. The summer's television have raised again, excuse me, the summer's Tesians have raised again a national conversation about the memory and history of the Civil War and its memorials. The, this, com- this conflicted conversation and infinitely many more will depend on how we do history. As we go forward with the work we do as members of ASLH, now more than ever perhaps, we recognize that history has the power to chart the possibilities for our future. Council organized an Aspirations Task Force this June that currently includes representatives from Council, staff, LNC, and the membership at large. The task force was organized so Council could be nimble and responsive to critical issues like those that unfolded this summer. The Aspirations Task Force is working across committees within Council and is eagerly reaching out to the the standing committees for input and to the membership at large. Front burner aspirations are to shift the culture of the association towards greater transparency and increased diversity within the association's membership and across the association's partners. A culture of experimentation enhanced trust with the latitude and confidence to try new methods made possible by a culture of openness, creativity, and informed risk-taking so that we can learn from each other's efforts, successes, and disappointments. The task force is led by ASLH Council Vice Chair Catherine Kane. Catherine recovering from a serious shoulder injury and in true good form has not stopped working on ASLH Aspiration documents even though she's typing that with just one hand. On behalf of Catherine and the Aspirations Task Force, I would like to briefly share with you some highlights from the task force effort. The task force began drafting an aspirational philosophy statement as a touchstone for conversations with membership and in council about the association's future. The philosophy statement is currently organized with four core aspirations. ASLH promotes the relevance of history. ASLH acts to build diversity and inclusiveness. ASLH cultivates an experimental and creative spirit both within ASLH and among constituents and partners and ASLH aims to increase financial stability and restore trust. The Aspirations Task for Philosophy Statement, which details these forecast's core aspirations, will be available at ASLH.org in the coming weeks. As members, you're invited to help refine the association's aspirations and help shape the association's goals. These aspirations are in draft form, so track changes are allowable and encouraged. I encourage you to share your ideas and comments on the aspirations through through our website, and as uh, Linda Norris suggested, we'll add a Google Docs component as well. So this is a living, fluid, organic process that we are all going to be a part of. Your ideas, your concerns, your comments should freely uh, be shared among the membership, including members volunteering in the association's governance, and share them with John and Bob as well. At the ASLH annual meetings in Birmingham and Oklahoma City, I had the pleasure of sharing ad hoc tables with Jean and Bill Watson. I was so pleased that delegates with their experience were interested in chatting with me and for making room at the funky little tables to meet me and share some of their stories. They described to me their international travels for their many years volunteering in the leadership for ICOM and their love for ASLH. Jean served on the ASLH Council and served the history community for over 40 years. Jean passed away late this summer. ASLH lost another longtime friend this summer Polly Lance Lennon. Polly was a longtime director of Connor Prairie and part of the Shaw faculty among her many contributions to the field. This August Polly Launce Lennon passed away at age 86 leaving behind an impressive legacy of best practice for the history field. SLH is a large organization, one shaped by many generations of history workers for over 75 years, people including Jean and Polly, who we are so honored to have had as members, leaders, and friends. Look to your right, go ahead, and look to your left, and know that you are among like-minded professionals who see the powerful possibility for history work. Stay connected stay engaged, and remain open to the possibilities. Thank you so much.
2: So I stand before you today the first time, my first time as ASLH president, uh, but as a long time, somewhat long time, ASLH member. And I've been coming to conferences for years. And as someone who has come to many conferences and put many conferences together, I understand that they really are works that are accomplished by many, many people. So I'm going to thank some some folks right now. I would like to begin with the session presenters, that we have more than 250 people who participated on this program directly, many, many more indirectly, and it wouldn't be possible without them. So thank you to the participants. We had a very energetic program committee. You've heard Kyle McCoy thanked many times in her 44-person program committee. They did wonderful work. We are fortunate to have many wonderful sponsors and exhibitors led by the History Channel, Brown Foreman the Ogle Foundation, and Solid Light. And we're really, really grateful to them and to all the other sponsors. So how about a round of applause for them? (laughs) And of course, there is the Kentucky Historical Society and other Louisville hosts who have been incredibly creative and hospitable and who have shown us and shared with us so many Kentucky treasures Um, I think a lot of us are going to look at Louisville in a different way. The state of Kentucky will be back here. Um, I hope anyone who was here for the first time will come back. So thank you Kent Whitworth. Thank you Scott Alvey um, and your whole crew. Uh, Really amazing work last night especially with the block party. This is also my annual opportunity to thank the staff. Uh, Julie already did that. Um, I was told in the past they stood up. It's always a good idea so people can see you. you. I won't I won't name you, but could you guys stand up? I won't name you. So. Thank you. And, and really, special thanks to Bob Beatty for holding everything together so long and so well. Um, and uh, special thanks to Bethany for this conference. It's amazing. So ASLH is moved forward by a multitude of volunteers, such as committee and affinity group members, conference participants. ASLH is the historical community, a fluctuating crowd over the decades in which people assist each other in advancing the field. And I think that's fundamentally what we are are about as an organization. In the 75th anniversary year, the organization continues to evolve, as Rick Beard has been writing about in History News. Each time there has been challenges in the field, the history community responds. Now I think maybe another major shift is occurring. I stuck the maybe in there about 10 minutes ago. I'm not so sure, but I'd like to think it's true. How many of us 10 or 20 years ago held out hope that mainstream America would be so engaged with the meaning of symbols of the American past? This year, we have seen impassioned discussion about displaying Confederate statues, monuments, and flags. What I wanted to do is point out the obvious. Maybe something big has shifted in our country, or is about to shift. And we now may be at a high water mark for history organizations. Confronted by violent tragedy and simmering race relations, communities, politicians, and the media are engaged in vigorous debates about history's hold on the present. On a state-by-state, community-by-community basis, people are figuring out what history means in the context of today. What kind of fresh openings do history organizations have today that we didn't have several years ago? Let's look at the landscape. We know that there are a lot of history organizations. You all heard about the IMLS report in 2014, I think it was, that announced that there were 35,000 museums in the country, uh, more than double what the agency had thought there were, Uh, 56% of those were considered history organizations or 19,500 and this includes history museums, historical societies, historic preservation entities and historical houses and sites. And this happens to echo the findings of the Indiana Humanities Council's report Humanities at the Crossroads last year, which was a lead case study for a national initiative to measure the 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 range of of humanities in the country. In Indiana, more than eighty percent of all the humanities organizations offer one or more history programs. What else do we know about the landscape? We know that trust in museums, especially history museums, remains high like we all heard it or like we all learned it was in Thielen and Rosenzweig's 1998 book, Presence of the Past. 80% of their survey respondents ranked history museums as being trustworthy, far above the 69% for personal accounts by family members, 54% for college professors, and 11% for movies and TV. And I know you've all heard those numbers many times over the years, but the point is that they remain high. Reach advisors, museum R&D, reported some similar findings this summer after surveying 7,000 people about trustworthiness. Museums ranked the highest, 6.4 on a scale of one to 10, above Wikipedia at 5.7, for example, and NPR at at 5.0. History museums and historic sites ranked even higher, or highest of all, actually, at 6.7. So history organizations are everywhere, and they are trusted. Third, we are compiling evidence that history organizations have a positive impact on people. Not only is the History Relevance Campaign digging into the question of impact, looking for measurable, real examples of institutions changing their communities. But there have been, uh, there are plenty of other studies. For example, the United Kingdom's Heritage Counts 2014 survey determined that history institutions have a measurable effect on social well-being. And they, they set about trying to actually measure that well-being, that, that impact on well-being. And they put it in, in uh, I was going to say dollar terms, but they put it in pound terms. Uh, the amount of money which provides the same impact on well-being as visiting a heritage site overall, according to the study, is calculated as about, and I converted it back into dollars, um, $2,800. So the United Kingdom study also claimed that history volunteers reported higher levels of mental health and well-being than the general population. So maybe we can be optimistic. Is that not true? Do you all all have crazy volunteers? Okay. Um, Maybe we can be optimistic for our field. And it's worth pointing out, in contrast, for all the celebration of STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math, and all the money that STEM gets, that our colleagues in the sciences now are actually not feeling very optimistic. And this largely has to do with uh, climate change, uh, the science on climate change and on evolution. Scientists are undergoing their own culture wars over the politicization of evolution and climate change and generally feel divorced from the American public. If 2015 is a high point for historical organizations, which I hope, we don't know yet, and the public being, and it's a high point for the public being somewhat in agreement with the importance of history and even the general interpretive direction, say, of the meaning of the Civil War and its causes and consequences, the same is not true for science. A couple of surveys by the Pew Research Center earlier this year showed that while the public holds scientists in high regard, there is a, quote, deep divide between scientists and the public over many topics. Back in 2009, three quarters of scientists thought that now was a good time, meaning 2009 was a good time for science. So three quarters thought it was a good time for young people to get into science. But five years later, that had dropped to just 50%. They are troubled, scientists are troubled by scientific ignorance in the general population and by strong differences in perception with the public on key issues. Now we in the historical profession are familiar with broad public controversies, differing perspectives, and opposing views. And yet, somehow, on some topics, we appear to be in closer agreement with the mainstream public than in decades. My point is, in the seventy fifth year of the ASLH, the horizon is bright. I hope i 'm just added that one just now. As we collect, preserve, and interpret the past, our audiences may be listening, and we definitely are trying to listen to them and include them and learn from them. Wendell Berry, one of our speakers an hour ago, once said. If people have forgotten or never learned each other's stories, how can they know whether or not to trust each other? As historians, we understand the power of possibility of stories in the past resonating in the present, opening new ways of seeing and solving contemporary problems. In places like Ferguson and Baltimore and hundreds of other communities, we know that people may begin to trust each other when they know each other's stories and they see similarities and respect differences in their pasts. History is relevant. All of us in this room know that. But do we intentionally articulate how, ins- how essential it is? How good are our institutions at stepping back from the specific history we are telling to connect it to issues and problems and opportunities today? Are we able to step back yet further and simply champion history itself as a discipline and a field and a way of thinking? I think in the ways that uh, Sam Weinberg has talked about uh, yesterday. The History Relevance Campaign's message is that we history professionals and volunteers must say how vital understanding of the past is. It nurtures identity in an intercultural world, teaches critical skills and independent thinking. It can strengthen communities and be a catalyst for economic growth. History can inspire leadership, and it certainly can help those who listen to craft better solutions to today's problems. Maybe this is the best moment in the past 20 or 30 or 40 years to make sure we are each ready wherever and whenever to make the case for historical understanding, and the institutions, collections, landscapes, communities, and other resources that keep the past alive. I'd like to challenge all of us to have an elevator speech for history, just a short 20-second explanation of why history is essential to the well-being of your community and to the country and to the world. And I think we each need to be ready to spell it out. What is at stake? Historical understanding helps us flourish in a culturally diverse world. When we learn each other's stories, we begin to trust each other and we can figure out how to face challenges together. The economist Scott E. Page has outlined how diversity helps in modern society. Those who see the world in the same way in a homogenous group often agree and can move forward together, and that's great. But then they also all tend to get stuck in the exact same place when they get stuck. When that happens and when things are truly gridlocked, no one in a homogenous group can see what the next step should be. What the next step should be. In a diverse group, where one perspe- when one perspective hits a dead end, there are other perspectives that can find a way forward. As Julie outlined a few minutes ago, the ASLH Council and the Aspirations Task Force are taking up both history relevance and the issue of diversity and inclusion and putting them at the forefront of the organization. And that's really exciting we also are going to be more transparent and more open to experimentation to guide and support this effort there are a whole host of changes in ASLH underway in our 75th year a few of the priorities that I personally have are these in general we will be working to amplify the organization's ability to serve as the, as the central place for lots of different kinds of history practitioners and history organizations to come together ASLH's brand is your home for history, and we'll be throwing open the doors to the house. For instance, I see thousands of volunteers at history organizations, many of whom ASLH currently serves and counts on as members, but we can do more. I'd like, for example, to sharpen and expand the online courses and webinars and the on-site workshops that ASLH offers, both for the volunteers and those employed in history organizations. Glancing in another direction, I think ASLH has much to offer academic historians and graduate students. And I think they're, pretty, they're represented in our ranks, but I think it's a pretty thin representation. Our institutions are primary employers of those earning history degrees and, and, and related degrees. ASLH can help to establish mutually beneficial project and consultative relationships with scholars where expertise really flows in both directions, not a top-down thing, but a side-to-side um, from the scholar to the to the history organization and, and back. State and local history practitioners should be influencing what is taught in public history and museum studies programs, as well as the traditional history programs. Another exciting opportunity is for ASLH to reach passionate avocational historians. And by these, I mean genealogists, reenactors, the kinds of people who might participate in a crowdsourcing project, uh, crowdsourcing History Project, uh, retiring baby boomers who are active, lifelong learners. Many AASLH member organizations already are working with these history makers. AS- AASLH as an organization should too, and if we want our policymakers and funders to really grasp the relevance of history and to fund it and support it, we could use the allies. ASLH should also seek international connections and foster efforts to place state and local history in global contexts. We need to see more of it as our communities welcome new arrivals and recognize diversities that are already present. That was a subtle nod to immigration uh, and ethnic diversity. Uh, As we all see, our local history is part of global movements of people, resources, and ideas. All history is local, but it doesn't occur in a vacuum. Lastly, another of my hopes for ASLH is that we all help to pull back the curtain on the interpretive process, encouraging historians and history practi- practitioners to be more open about how we choose the stories we tell and make decisions behind the scenes. This is an idea I'm, I, was, I have borrowing, but I'll say stealing from Robert Wyaneth, uh, president of NCPH last year, who talked about this in his presidential address, pulling back the curtain on the interpretive process. He described it as being open with visitors about why the old exhibits at a site are being removed to a new exhibit to add new exhibits or on different topics, why a particular object was chosen for an exhibit case versus another in the collection, why was a decision made to preserve rather than restore that building over there, and what the heck is preservation anyway. We should be demonstrating the complexities of what we do and why there are high standards and refined methods and why historical thinking is important. Doing so draws people into the interpretive process. Pulling back the curtain can turn questions and doubts into collaboration, tolerance, inquiry, and connection. ASLH is uniquely positioned among historical and museum associations to be the home for history where all this happens. As your professional association, ASLH occupies a middle space helping to connect, supply, and support thousands of history practitioners in their daily work. 75 is a big anniversary and we are marking it with a fundraising effort, the 75 for 75 campaign. We will continue to celebrate this diamond anniversary through next year. And that reminds me, I did not mention in the treasurer's report where we were with the 75 for 75 campaign. Getting nods, yes. John, you were supposed to do that. Uh, So you you all may remember the 75 for 75 campaign was launched last year in St. Paul at this event, at this meeting of the membership. Uh, the goal was to raise $75,000, hopefully in $75 Im- increments or more from members, and we are at about $43,000. Um, so we're closing in on it. We want to finish it this fiscal year. Uh, so I would encourage all of you to make a contribution. Thank you to all who have given once, twice, or more. And uh, for everyone else, please consider giving to the 75 75- dollars 75 for 75 campaign because it will be one of the tools that we use to carry out what I think is a very exciting agenda, some of the things that Julie outlined and that I've tried to outline here. They say history is about the past and remembering tradition, but it's also even more about how things change. There's always change, right? This organization is changing, we can see it. They say that historical thinking is casual, easy, just sort of reminiscing nostalgia, escapism, But we know historical thinking is an unnatural act. It goes against the grain. It's difficult. It has to be learned and exercised. And we know that ultimately historical thinking can help lead the way forward. They say heritage, nostalgia, and the lost cause would never fade away. Folks just have to have their heritage. But sometimes historical rigor can make a dent. Yes, this conference will soon be over, and we'll all travel back to our homes and offices, and even the memory of this conference in this hotel on the falls of the Ohio will dissipate too quickly. But I guess my point is, we came together this year, as we have done for three quarters of a century, to sharpen our standards and expertise, to share creative solutions, and to be rejuvenated in our work. And we go home individually, but united, I hope, to speak the value of history. Thank you. Now, I think the business is all over, and we're ready to move on to highlights of next year's annual meeting, or give us a taste of what Detroit will be like, like, in case we want to vote at this meeting to go somewhere else. And I'd like to introduce Toby Voigt, who's going to tell us uh, with her colleagues about why we should be excited next year.
1: Awesome, I'm loving it already. Awesome, well hello everyone. Thank you all for coming to the meeting and the membership. This is such an important part of the conference and I'm so excited to see so many of you here. So, I've got a little story to tell. In the waning days of the year 1900, Detroit Mayor William C. Mayberry had an idea. He wanted to create a time capsule that contained a complete record of life in the city at the time to be opened 100 years later. In addition to detailed reports on the state of manufacturing, culture, religion, and high society, Mayberry asked a few key community leaders to prophesize what Detroit would look like in the year 2000. Some got eerily close to the truth, like Orrin Baldwin, who predicted that, quote, factory products will be largely transported in airships, unquote. Others got it very wrong, like the police commissioners, who declared that, quote, Prisoners, instead of being sent through, uh, s- conveyed to the several police stations in automobile patrol wagons, will be sent through pneumatic tubes, <laughs> flying machines, and other similar processes. So, oops. But most were unabashedly optimistic about what Detroit would look like in 2000. Uh, The industrialist and art collector Charles Lang Freer wrote a very poetic letter, and he said, quote, I see Detroit ablaze with the radiance of more perfect and higher life, brilliant with the light of shining ideas and noble actions, gracious and simpler and truer relations between men, useful in broader and countless ways. All expected that the small city of Detroit, with a mere 300,000 residents at the time, would flourish as an industrial center. By 2001, they all stated, Detroit's population would skyrocket to four million. Industry would be king, and Detroit would rival New York City in size and influence on the nation and world. Well, we are all historians, so I don't need to recount to you how Detroit's progress through the 20th century feared a little bit off that course. So, uh, okay. so, but how could our four- city's forefathers have anticipated the shift from an industrial economy to an informational economy? The whole idea to them would have been as fanciful as sending prisoners through pneumatic tubes. So, when Detroit Mayor Dennis Archer opened the time capsule on December 31st, 2000, the city's population had dwindled to 950,000, its reputation as the automobile capital of the world was in shambles, and the city rivaled New York City only with its crime rate. At the start of the 21st century, so just over a decade ago, Detroit was known internationally for its poverty, blight, economic disparity, racial disharmony, and political dysfunction. It was not, as Freer had anticipated or prophesied, ablaze with the radiance of more perfect and higher life. So I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, what kind of sales pitch is she up here giving us right now about the city of Detroit? So, but bear with me, bear with me. In deciding exactly how to invite you all to Detroit, our hometown, our pride, we thought it may be best to honestly acknowledge and address what many of you may be thinking. I've heard several of you say at this time, or this conference, why on earth would ASLH go to Detroit? Well, here's why. The Detroit of 2015 gives perfect opportunity to explore issues of radical change and rebirth, of re-envisioning and reinvention, of the push and pull of competing ideas in a space that is open to doing things differently, not because we want to, but because we have to. Like Detroit, these are issues that we face in the museum field every day. In the post-industrial world, our country's great rustbelt cities are facing, Detroit and others, we're not the only one. Detroiters are leading the nation in our ability to innovatively reimagine ourselves, our purpose, and our future direction. It's exciting, it's scary, but it's necessary, just as the work, this work is necessary for us in the museum field. The Detroit of 2015 is brimming with excitement and optimism. Let me show you with this very brief video. Look at there. If there's one thing we know in Detroit, it's patience.
2: Things are happening in Detroit.
1: One moment, please. I'm not gonna like sing some Motown for you all right now. None of you need to hear that. But why don't while we're while we're waiting, um, Banner folks, why don't you you get started? Be careful. So, I do want to show you the video, but I'm going to keep going because I know we're coming up on time. Um, Ta-da! So, thank you, all of you who came to our booth and participated. So, Detroit's city motto is, we hope for better things, it shall rise from the ashes. Just like our banner project here has taken chaos of scribbles and turned it into a piece of art, Detroit is rising from the ashes and reinventing itself. We are a doggedly determined city. We put the world on wheels and then produced more than 10% of the war materials used for World War II. We are the home to Aretha Franklin, Diana Ross, Marvin Gaye, and the other artists that created the Motown sound. We were the doorway to freedom for more than 30,000 freedom seekers escaping enslavement in the early 19th century. And we smuggled in more than 75% of the illegal liquor that came from Canada during Prohibition. (laughs) You're welcome. Today, we boast an international river walk that since 2007 has transformed three and a half miles of an industrial wasteland into a network of parks, plazas, and green spaces our Eastern Market is the country's oldest and largest urban farmers market. We have some of the world's best museums, including the Detroit Institute of Arts and the Henry Ford. Our downtown is revitalized with 90% residential occupancy. Businesses that moved to the suburbs 30 years ago are coming back downtown, and we have a host of new attractions, shops, bars, and restaurants. As a field, we museum professionals have that same drive, the same passion as Detroiters have, so it's only natural that we all come together in Detroit. So, on behalf of the AASLH 2016 Host Committee and its chair, Kathleen Mullins of Historic Florida States, I formally invite you, the ASLH membership, to Detroit for the 2016 AASLH and Michigan Museums Association Annual Meeting. Thank you. And we'll put a link to the video on the website. It's worth seeing. If you have any doubt of how beautiful downtown Detroit is, you have to see the video. So thank you all.
0: Thank you all so much. Motion to adjourn. So moved. Thank you all. Enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you. We'll see you at the banquet this evening. Most of you will be there for awards. Thank you all very much.